Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissue shoes your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 35 in our series for 2019. And today's date is Friday, September the 27th. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. First, I talked to Fred Shabesta, co-founder of Finder.com which is now a global business and worth unofficially $1 billion. And then I talked to Indeed economist Callum Pickering, analysing the latest employment figures. But first, let's talk to Fred Shabesta. Fred Shabesta, uh, you're a co-founder of Finder.com, uh, which is a global business, and uh, unofficially it's worth about $1 billion. Uh, tell us about it. Yeah, I guess at Finder, you know, we have a, a vision to better all the world's decisions. And, you know, we're obsessed about helping customers make a decision. And, and, and we do that through, you know, hundreds of different categories of products. And uh, we help people uh, learn and solve their problems on the side and then, you know, go on to make a great decision. Because decisions at the end of the day, you know, help you uh, better your life, really, and get yourself into a better, better situation so you can go on and do the things that you want to do. So what kind of thing does Finder uh, do? You know, at its core, uh, we, we have obviously a lot of guides and, and comparison tables on the site. Uh, say, compare credit cards, mortgages, uh, personal loans, insurances, 
cell phone plans, broadband, you know, and then it gets, you know, online mattresses. It, 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 there's, there's hundreds of different things you can compare in Finder. Uh, and it all, it's a free service. You go there and you choose, compare the different rates and you can, you can go on and, and, and apply for that product on the, on the bank or insurance company's site. And yeah, save yourself some money. And, and it's global. Yeah, so we started here in, in Sydney, in Australia, and we've uh, slowly uh, but surely uh, grown now. We have offices uh, in the US and the UK that we are, uh, yeah, we, 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 we also market to the rest of the world, Singapore, Hong Kong, Canada, New Zealand, and we're really pushing, you know, trying to deliver on our vision of bettering all the world's decisions. That's, that's quite amazing. Now, you also set up a venture capital arm called Finder Ventures, is that right? That's right. Yeah. So this really invests in some of the new products and new new uh, businesses that we're doing. So one of them is the cryptocurrency brokerage HiveX. So we think the, you know the blockchain space is really emerging, and uh, we provide that digital exchange for customers. And um, and we have another project that we're working on, and it's 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 a it's quite an endeavour, but it will it will be more, much more closely associated with the fund. And uh, so you this venture capital arm. This is for other companies other businesses that you're investing in yeah uh, they're obviously primarily very close to finder right now uh, and then in the future we'll be looking at other uh, external companies and, and and we're reviewing that and how we're going to approach that but right now we're, we're very focused on our own uh, new ventures uh, that we've um, we've started and, and that we are investing in so tell us about these new ventures that you're investing in Yes, I guess you know Hivex is you know a cryptocurrency brokerage, so it it, um, it helps people buy large uh, sums of uh, buy and sell large sums of cryptocurrency. Uh, so you know fifty thousand dollars and above, you know, and and we sort of can handle transactions from ten to ten million dollars, five ten million dollars is quite comfortable for us. And and then I guess um, our second venture is something which we we haven't revealed publicly. Um, but it's something we are, um, you know, very heavily working on, uh, and it will be in in you know very closely associated to Finder. But um, you know, maybe you say it's in the in the fintech space. Cryptocurrency is uh, is quite important. It's reshaping the market. I think that cryptocurrency is probably ten years ahead of its time. Um, I think it is used for certain things, and it is sort of a you know a hedge against you know, fiat currency and central banks. But it, to some extent, I think that, you know, the banking system that works today is great. When I go and want to want to pay for things, you know, and I travel around the world in the US, the UK, and you know, um, those countries, Europe, um, Asia, wherever, like we can make payments. There's nothing wrong with that. The only thing with cryptocurrency, and I think that's where it'll get uh, different, is that the actual control of monetary policy and, 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 and things like that you know, and that might come into question in the future. It may or may not, but it is a hedge and it is an opportunity. And that's where I think things like Bitcoin sort of fit in. I think it's like, I see it as like open source money. And then when you have, you know, the current fiat currencies like US dollars, euros, pounds, Australian dollars, they're, they're kind of they're kind of like the, the privately held systems as opposed to the open source ones. Right, right. I mean, the issue with uh, cryptocurrency is about control, isn't it? I mean, central banks controlling it because there's no overall control of the market, that market? Yeah, you know, for decentralised currencies, yes, but there are obviously centralised currencies. And I do think central banks will launch their own digital currencies. I think that is coming and it will happen. 
it's just what's going to take some time because you know you got to think through all the challenges and issues because you can track it better. You can track all the money, which which you know is, is very interesting. And and then you won't you know cash today is the same as decentralized money. You know it's 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 no one knows where it goes. It's and once it's into the hands of people, then it sort of moves around. Um, and it's sort of private private transactions really. Whereas I wouldn't say, so, no, so, so I'll take that back. It wasn't so much decentralized money, but it's more private transactions. And so I think there are things called privacy coins that will potentially replace that. But, you know, a central bank's currency would mean that if they could track every single transaction that happened uh, through the blockchain. Um, and, and that would definitely change things as well. So what future do you see for cryptocurrency? Do you think it will come to dominate everything? I think that both systems will coexist. And... I don't think that, you know, government, uh, well, not not in for a very long period of time unless something very calamitous was to happen, but I think central banks will continue on uh, and they will change and they're going to start adapting and doing better because they have to, because there are these threats of cryptocurrency and people getting off those central systems and, 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 and you know, dealing with monetary policy and, and, and inflation and things like that. Cause, and, and I think that will happen. Uh, but... I don't think it's something that'll happen, you know, in the short term. I think it'll sort of take around ten years. Now, I have to ask you. I mean, you you have actually started up uh, one of Australia's most successful online business exports. What advice would you give to other startups moving in this direction? Yeah, you know, I think that it's really important if you want to build a global business that you need to get out of Australia. Uh, Australia doesn't have the same dynamics as the rest of the world. It's actually a bit of an island. It's a small place on the on the earth, and it has uh, similar systems to the UK. And when you go to other countries and you realise the actual state of things and the innovations that are taking place and what's the actual cadence of the majority of the population, you'll find that it's very, very different to what's happening in Australia. And so so that, that would be my first thing. The second thing I would do... You know, I think it's just just ensure that your business is uh, robust and scalable and 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 tested in a small way. Uh, so do it small first, and then start to build on it. And then you know, once you find some success, and, and then go from there. A lot of people go for a big big bang, and that's not really my style. My style is consistent, considered approach. And then when we find success, we invest big. And I think that's what we did in the US and the UK. And we're starting to really, you know, we've put a lot of money into those businesses. And we're really, we want to want to make the first global comparison service. So uh, your advice to startups would be slow and steady? You know, work hard, work fast, but invest cautiously, take considered steps and start small and then, then invest big. And uh, so, don't expect anything overnight. But uh, it, it will take. That could take years. Fund is ten years old now, so you know, I'm up for the long haul. And I'll do ten more years easy. <laughs> right, right, right. And so, uh, so that's your advice to startups: uh, slow, steady, and cautious steps, and invest slowly as you find success. Yep. Well, that's, that's going to be fascinating to watch. And uh, look, thank you very much for your time, Fred. It's been fantastic. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome, my man. And now let's talk to Callum Pickering. The unemployment figures, the uh, numbers, uh, we, we seem to have strong employment growth, but it's uh, 
uh, unemployment's gone up. Yeah, we have a bit of an odd situation at the moment. So we have very strong employment growth, um, but the unemployment rate continues to rise. So employment was up 37,400 people in August and it's up uh, 311,000 over the year. Now, normally numbers of that nature would be more than enough to bring the unemployment rate down. Unfortunately, the unemployment rates increased to 5.3% from 4.9% earlier this year. What's happening is that participation in the, in the workforce is, is rising and it's rising quite rapidly. And that means that despite strong employment growth, it's just nowhere near enough to bring the unemployment rate lower. Is that because the employment growth has not kept up with our population growth? Yeah, to some degree, that's, that's the case. So um, despite the fact that we have very strong employment growth, there's a lot of people entering the workforce, um, whether that be new immigrants or people turning uh, 15 or people even remaining in the workforce longer than they did in the past. That's certainly the case with you know, a lot of older Australians who might have retired at the age of 65 um, you know, a decade ago, but today they tend to, to hang around uh, a little bit longer. And so that's putting some upward pressure on the participation rate. And that in turn is putting upward pressure on the unemployment rate. So our participation rate is increasing. That's right. It's up um, over 66%, which is the highest level in our history. And, and certainly if recent trends persist, it looks as though it's going to continue to increase uh, for the foreseeable future, which again means that employment growth is going to have to remain really, really strong um, because if it doesn't, um, the unemployment rate is going to, to drift um, much higher than its current level. Well, I've read somewhere that we have to be putting on 400,000 jobs a year for it to come down. Would that be right? Well, it's certainly uh, in the ballpark. Um, so like I said, uh, 311,000 people joined the, the workforce um, over the past 12 months, and that hasn't been enough to bring down the unemployment rate. So a number closer to 400,000 might be necessary in the current uh, environment. If the participation rate stabilises, then that sort of calculation would shift a bit and, and perhaps growth of 300,000 might be enough. Uh, but certainly in an environment where the participation rate is climbing, we need historically strong employment growth to bring the unemployment rate down. The other interesting part about it is that uh, we've had employment growth uh, was mainly in the area of part-time work. Would that be right? Yeah, that's right. Um, so while employment was up 37,400 people, full-time employment actually declined by uh, 15,500 um, people. So the jobs that were created were not necessarily the high-quality um, jobs that we'd certainly be hoping to create. Um, over the past year, we've seen that um, full-time employment's accounted for around 60% of employment. That's a little bit below its long-term average, um, which does mean that the Australian economy is creating a lot of part-time, casual, even some insecure um, jobs at the moment. So to some extent, that headline employment figure could be a little bit misleading because it's not quite as strong as it suggests once you sort of delve into the details. So while the government is claiming it's uh, creating a lot of jobs, we're not here talking about high quality jobs. Yeah, it certainly appears that way. And we've got to remember that not all jobs are, you know, the economy can be creating a, a lot of part-time roles that are 15 hours a week, but that's not going to be the same as creating a lot of uh, full-time 40-hour week um, jobs. Right now, it appears as though we've um, drifted towards creating lower quality jobs, um, which is keeping the employment figures high, um, but doesn't mean that those employment figures are having the same economic impact that they would have 
if a higher share of those jobs were full-time and high-quality roles. What's interesting, though, is that this has uh, led to an increase in the underemployment rate. I believe there's now something like a record number of 1.7 million Australians who are underemployed. Is that right? Uh, Well, it's 1.7 million who are unemployed and underemployed. I think the underemployed number is closer to 1.1 million, but you're right, it is a record. And the sort of job creation that we have seen over the past 12 months is helping to push the underemployment rate higher. A lot of the people who are taking on part-time roles today would prefer more hours. They might be working 15 hours, but they prefer 20, 25, 30 hours a week. And so they're being classified as being underemployed. Um, And that's pushed the underutilisation rate up to 13.8%, which is uh, not that far below its post-GFC peak of 14.8%. So that remains incredibly high despite the job creation we've seen over a number of years. So our employment, our jobs market is close to where it was during the GFC. Is that right? Uh, well, in terms of underutilisation, um, that's that's correct. Um, it's only slightly better than we were back then, which is one of the, the key reasons why wage growth remains so weak. We need to see uh, the unemployment rate, the underemployment rate and the underutilisation rate all decline quite a lot before we're likely to see the sort of wage growth that we were once accustomed to. So what would be your forecast for the next set of employment figures? Well, I said over the next six months, I anticipate that the unemployment rate's likely to drift uh, higher again. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw a, a 5.5% uh, read in, in early uh, 2020. Um, and that's based on what I'm seeing, not just uh, in the employment figures themselves, but also looking at economic growth, which is very low at 1.4%. And uh, also other measures of the labour market, such as the ANZ job ad series, which has declined by 11% over the past year. When I sort of put all these figures together, it certainly suggests as though uh, labour market conditions are likely to, to soften in the near term. And that would point towards a higher unemployment rate. Of 5.5%. Yeah, I mean, obviously things can change between net within the next six months, but certainly based upon economic growth and these other labour market indicators, it does suggest as though the unemployment rate would drift a little bit higher and 5.5% is certainly within the realms of possibility. Which means our, our wages growth will remain very, very meagre. Well, the, the risk if um, the unemployment rate does continue to drift higher is that wage growth actually weakens. Um, We've been talking for a long time about wage growth gradually improving, and and that's been the case. But if the labour market is softening and if the unemployment rate is drifting higher, then it is possible that wage growth could actually get a little bit worse before it uh, finally starts to get better. And for it to finally get better, we're going to have to see real jobs growth and unemployment come down. We're going to need to see a lot of uh, full-time, high-quality jobs being created. Um, we would need to see the underutilisation rate come down to around 12% uh, from the 13.8% it is currently. And that probably translates into an unemployment rate of around 4.5%. Now, uh, if uh, you were Philip Lowe at the RBA, what would you be saying? What would you be saying uh, looking at these figures? What would be your reaction to this? Well, naturally, I'd be concerned about what these figures mean for inflation going forward. Um, the Reserve Bank needs the unemployment rate to come down if they want to foster higher wage growth. Um, and they need higher wage growth 
growth if they want to get the uh, inflation rate back to between 2 and, and 3%. So if I'm Philip Lowe right now, I would certainly be looking at cutting rates. And certainly the market expects that to be the case um, as early as the October board meeting. Um, but it is likely that that won't be the only cut the RBA puts through. And I'd fully expect a, a second cut to take place within the next six months as well. So conceivably, we, we are looking at a 0.5% cash rate. Yeah, that's right. Which, you know, if we were having this conversation 12 months ago, is quite remarkable um, to think about. No one was really talking about that back then. But such has been the, the deterioration in economic growth um, and the concern over the labour market, wages and inflation. Um, and it's unclear at this point whether another 50 basis points will be enough to drag the Australian economy out of its current funk. But certainly, it certainly appears as though the Reserve Bank is willing to give that a crack. And, of course, there'd be a lot more pressure on the Reserve Bank because the Fed has cut rates and uh, uh, the European Central Bank has now moved into negative negative rates. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, the Reserve Bank of Australia isn't the only central bank um, concerned about growth and inflation and the economic outlook. Um, the Fed and the ECB are also concerned and to some degree that might make things more difficult for the Reserve Bank because it does tend to put a little bit of upward pressure on the Australian dollar and of course we're relying on that uh, weak Australian dollar to to boost inflation um, domestically so that'll certainly be a situation to keep an eye on. And uh, you don't see inflation picking up at all? Well, until we see a material pickup in wages, I think that inflation's likely to be quite soft going forward. There, There is a, a few things that could boost inflation temporarily. Um, we did see the oil price shock um, from Saudi Arabia. That could feed through to higher inflation in the near term, say over the next three or six months. But in terms of um, measures of core inflation, the, the trim mean and the, the weighted median measures that the RBA tends to focus on, um, those measures are largely going to be driven by higher wage growth. So until that materialises, um, I would expect um, core inflation measures to remain quite low. Well, Callum Pickering, that they're quite grim findings. And uh, thank you very much for your time. And thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, the threat of impeachment is back. And this time, investors seem to be paying at least some attention. Indeed, stocks headed back to session lows in Tuesday afternoon trade after news reports said House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, a California Democrat, announced a formal impeachment inquiry of President Donald Trump, and they ended in negative territory. Other factors were also at work, including some downbeat consumer confidence data and a Trump speech at the United Nations that wasn't exactly warm and fuzzy when it came to US-China trade negotiations. Mr Trump sharply criticised China on Tuesday for what he called its unfair trade practices in a speech at the United Nations General Assembly, saying that he would not accept a bad deal for the American people. And indeed, US President Donald Trump says his trade war with China may not be resolved before the presidential elections in November next year. Mr Trump said obviously China is a threat to the world in a sense because they're building a military faster than anybody, but his focus with Beijing was on trade. Trump said he would not settle for a partial deal with China, such as one that deals only with agriculture, for example. At the same time, US consumer confidence slipped to 125.1 in September, according to a leading private sector report by the Conference Board, down from the previous month's reading of 135.1. It was the biggest fall in nine months and raised concerns among consumers about the economic impact 
of a prolonged US-China trade war. And President Donald Trump reiterated his call for the Federal Reserve to lower interest rates to less than zero in a tweet on Sunday. We should always be paying less interest than others, Trump tweeted, referring to the negative rates that have become commonplace in Europe and Asia. The Fed, on September the 18th, cut interest rates for the second time since July, but only by a quarter point, which Trump said wasn't enough, given that other central banks have cut rates more dramatically. He told Fox News in an interview that he's very disappointed in Fed Chairman Jerome Powell and questions his ability to play the game well. As of the market close on Friday, 10-year treasuries were yielding 1.72%. Powell has said he doesn't think the central bank will look at using negative rates. A handful of central banks in Denmark, the Eurozone, Japan, Sweden and Switzerland have pushed interest rates below zero. And earlier this month, the European Central Bank lowered its deposit rate by 10 basis points to minus 0.5% as part of a wide-ranging package to prop up the region's faltering economy and lift depressed inflation. And a combination of the US-China trade war and Brexit has dragged global manufacturing into recession, according to market analysts. Manufacturing has contracted across the 36 developed economies of the OECD, the weakest performance since 2013. German factories among the hardest hit, with the sharpest contraction in activity since the global financial crisis. Manufacturing surveys, or PMIs, published overnight showed European business growth has stalled, dragged down by deteriorating conditions in the economy's traditional powerhouse, Germany. The global manufacturing malaise has prompted QIC, one of Australia's largest fund managers, to stock up on large amounts of bonds, considered the safest type of investment, in anticipation of a global economic recession. Pressure in the global economy may be a key factor in driving the RBA to cut rates again. And maybe the Reserve Bank will cut its key cash rate for a third time this year at next Tuesday's meeting. Market forecasts for the cut to come ahead of the running of the Melbourne Cup on the first Tuesday in November. But Governor Philip Lowe has made it clear that low interest rates are here to stay for an extended period of time. In a speech delivered in the northern New South Wales regional city of Armidale, Governor Lowe made it very clear that the bank is prepared to continue cutting rates to help support sustainable growth in the economy, cut unemployment and push inflation towards a target range of 2-3% to over time. And the ANZ Roy Morgan Australian Consumer Confidence Index gained 0.7% last week after losing 3.5% in the previous reading. Strength was relatively broadly based across the sub-indices, although the time to buy a household item index dropped a sharp 3.8% and is now at its lowest level in 10 years. And Australia is losing its appeal for Chinese tourists and students as the harmful trade war between the US and Beijing, paired with a slowing economy at home, spooks them into staying put. The number of visitors from China increased just over 1% in the 12 months through July, matching the weakest rate in nine years, while the growth in students travelling down under to attend university has also slowed rapidly. Even in a weakening Aussie dollar, hasn't managed to halt the downturn. If a slowdown in Chinese students and visitors is prolonged, it could cost Australia's economy, the most China-reliant in the developed world, about $800 million over the next two years. Austrade, the government's trade promotion and investment attraction agency, is already scaling back forecast tourist arrivals. And Scott Morrison has urged that China lose its developing economy status and be stripped of concessions as part of an urgent reform of the global trading system. The Prime Minister has also laid out the key principles which will guide Australia's approach to the Indo-Pacific region ahead of the two regional summits in November, 
where it is inevitable the tensions between China and the US will again dominate. In a major foreign policy speech overnight to the Chicago Institute for Global Affairs, Mr Morrison issued a collective appeal for WTO reform. He stressed that Australia welcomed China's economic growth and he classified it as a newly developed economy. While designed as a compliment, it was also a statement that China should no longer be classified as a developing nation under WTO rules, a status that is self-assessed and entitles it to concessions not available to developed nations. Concessions can be related to environmental or labour obligations and can include longer time periods for implementing agreements and commitments. Mr Morrison said China's real status as a developed nation was a consequence of engaging with other nations, such as the US, which had established and lived by a rules-based order. And ratings agency Moody's has warned that bank profitability will remain under pressure as banks face a number of challenges. Slow loan growth, intense competition and declining interest rates will result in a contraction of net interest margins. Increasing credit costs from historical lows will add to pressure on profitability. And a once popular Queensland resort island, ravaged by Cyclone Yassi, has been sold to an investment group hoping to inject new life into the forgotten paradise. London-based group Mayfair 101 has bought Dunk Island for nearly $32 million and promises to bring the area back to its former glory. South of Cairns, the once picturesque holiday spot was hit hard by the Cyclone Larry in 2006 and then virtually wiped out by Cyclone Yassi in 2011. It has sat dormant ever since. The new island owners, however, are hopeful they can turn things around. The group is also in talks to purchase part of Mission Beach in the Cassowary Coast region at a combined price of $180 million, with hopes to transform the combined area into the tourism mecca of Australia. They also promise it will provide thousands of jobs. The resort, which once held proud position on the island, has been an eerie sight for eight years. The resort was formerly owned by Peter Bond, who bought it for $7.5 million in 2011, shortly after Cyclone Yassi hit in February that same year. Bond had initially planned to have 40 suites and 40 staff at the resort, but lost the key lease after several construction delays. And climate change is driving up the number of natural disasters hitting Australia, says one of the world's major ratings agency, warning more people could fall behind on their mortgage payments as a result. Moody's on Monday released research saying an increase in natural disasters across Australia could prove an economic risk to banks and their customers. Queensland and New South Wales have been the worst affected by disasters such as floods and fires since 1970, Moody's said, with an increased number of all types of natural disasters over the past 49 years. The agency, citing Bureau of Meteorology and CSIRO research, said Australia's average temperature had increased by one degree since 1910. There'd been a lift in extreme fire weather and an extension in the length of the fire season, while there were now more frequent marine heat waves because of warming oceans. Insurance and reinsurance companies have stepped up warnings that climate change is posing a risk to their business models and could make insurance too expensive in some areas most exposed to natural disasters. Moody's said after Cyclone Debbie, which hit Queensland in 2017, the number of home loans behind in repayment by at least 30 days increased by 15%. It took eight months for the delinquency rate to fall back to where it had been. And Atlassian co-founder Mike Cannon-Brooks will invest part of his personal wealth in an audacious $25 billion project to create the world's biggest solar farm, its biggest power storage system, and a 3,000-kilometre cable to export energy to Asia. Speaking on the sidelines of the United Nations Climate Forum, 
Mr Cannon Brooks revealed he would shortly declare how much equity he'll plough into the project company's Sun Cable. Atlassian is one of only a handful of prominent Australian companies signing up to reach net zero emissions as part of a broader push to spur business into action in the face of what United Nations Secretary-General Antonio Guterres this week described as government obstruction on climate policy. The Northern Territory project, which will run alongside the railway, will take seven or eight years to connect to Darwin and Alice Springs, then offshore through a cable underneath Indonesian waters. It will be fully unveiled in the next couple of months for sure. During this week's United Nations General Assembly, and immediately after the interview, the tech entrepreneur met with the Singapore government for talks about how to supply 25% of the city-state's energy needs within a decade. And a new study suggests insider trading by company directors trading on the Australian Securities Exchange is rife. Insider trading is illegal and takes place when investors use company information, not generally available to the public, to make money on a share market trade. The ANU looked at 50,000 directors' trades on the ASX from 2005 to 2015 and concluded insider trading is rife. The study found a statistically significant number of directors were making trades against the flow of the company immediately after a market-sensitive company announcement. And Qantas has been asked to help the hundreds of thousands of travellers caught up in the collapse of British booking giant Thomas Cook, the world's oldest travel company, which collapsed, stranding hundreds of thousands of holidaymakers around the globe and sparking the largest peacetime repatriation efforts in British history. Thomas Cook was founded in 1841. In its heyday, it counted Winston Churchill among its customers. The firm runs hotels, resorts, airlines and cruises for 19 million people a year in 16 countries. Thomas Cook's demise on Monday stranded 600,000 holidaymakers around the globe. Its demise is not a sign of a weak market. The industry is, if anything, enjoying a resurgence. The number of Britons going abroad on, on inclusive tours actually rose from 14.3 million in 2010 to 18.2 million in 2018. Rather, the firm racked up too much debt with ill-judged takeovers and maintained too many branches. New online-only travel agents easily undercut Thomas Cook on price. The debt-laden company confirmed on Friday it was seeking £200 million, that's $360 million Aussie, in funding to avoid going bust and held unsuccessful talks with shareholders and creditors over the weekend to stave off failure. Qantas confirmed on Monday afternoon that it had been approached to provide assistance to, to stranded travellers. Thomas Cook ceased its Australian operations earlier this year, but locally listed travel business Webjet still has a commercial arrangement with the British company. Webjet's shares fell 3.48% to $11.11 at the market close after it said it would write off nearly $44 million it was owed by the British travel company. It would also take a $7 million hit to the annual earnings of its Webbeds business for the current financial year. And the Hain Royal Commission and a cooling economy is being blamed for record high turnover among top CEOs in Australian companies. New research from the recruitment company Robert Half found that more than 40 of the top 200 CEOs, 22%, have been in their role less than a year. And the merger of industry super funds Host Plus and Club Super will go ahead with the fund signing a successor fund transfer deed with a merger to complete by the end of October. HostPlus, which manages about $42 billion on behalf of 1.2 million members, started out more than 30 years ago, covering workers in the hospitality, tourism and recreation industry, and is open to the public. It's one of the super industry's best-performing funds. And advertising veteran John Singleton has signed over his stake in Macquarie Media, with his friend and venture capitalist Mark Carnegie expected to follow suit. 
delivering Nine Entertainment the shareholding it needs to seal this takeover of the radio broadcaster. Nine lifted its stake to 87.05% on Tuesday morning, up from 54.4% after Mr Singleton accepted Nine's $1.46 per share offer. Sources have indicated Mr Carnegie is likely to back the offer following an independent expert's report by PwC, which declared Nine's offer fair and reasonable. That will take Nine's stake in Macquarie to over 90%, at which point the media company, owner of the Australian Financial Review, can compulsorily sweep up the remaining shares. And digital payments giant PayPal will undertake an urgent audit of its global money transfers business given ongoing concerns it's being used by child exploitation rings in Asia. The financial intelligence watchdog has ordered PayPal Australia to appoint an external auditor to probe suspicions that the internal funds transfer platform could be used to facilitate online child abuse material. The Australian Transaction Reports Analysis Centre, or OSTRAC, said it is investigating PayPal's compliance with international funds transfer obligations to or from Australia. In a statement, Austrac singled out child exploitation as a risk that prompted the regulatory intervention. PayPal Australia was working with global crime agencies, given there's evidence that online payments platforms have been exploited by child sex rings, Austrac says. And Treasury Wine Estate's Chief Executive Mike Clark says a potential demerger of the group's lower-priced commercial wine arm from the higher-end business led by Penfolds could still happen as part of a bigger corporate deal involving M&A. Demerger is still on the cards if we do the right M&A, Mr Clark told an Investor Day briefing on Tuesday. He said the trigger would be a large M&A deal where the acquired company's commercial wine business would be meshed together with Treasury's own lower-priced wine arm, which makes about 30% of overall sales. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Dominic Caruso, the CEO of influencer platform Crowd Media. And I'll be talking to RMIT economist Professor Sinclair Davidson, analysing the Morrison government's latest budget update. And of course, I'll be bringing you all the week's news. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBizZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Have a great week. Take care, be good. And looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.